Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. <laughs> right, let me see where am I. This episode was recorded in 2020. At the start of that year, if someone had told me there's about to be a global pandemic, you won't be able to leave the house, and the person you'll spend most of your time with will be national treasure and broadcasting legend Tony Blackburn, I'd have struggled to believe them. Yep, I've got it all ready to record. You just never know what's around the corner, do you? Hi everybody, how are you? Another Sound of the Sixes, and I hope you've got two hours to spare. Let's start off with Arthur Connolly. Throughout that year, my job was to produce Tony Blackburn's show Sounds of the 60s for BBC Radio 2, with him recording remotely from his home in Hertfordshire. Dusty Springfield, stay a while, especially for five-year-old Robin, who wants to be a disc jockey just like me when she grows up. It's a great show that features some fantastic 60s music and some truly astonishing gags. Did you hear about the glassblower who started sucking instead of blowing? He got a pain in his stomach. I genuinely can't recommend it enough. Once we'd finished recording, he'd send me his audio so I could turn it into the show that people heard on air. Shall I just close this down and send this to you? It took about ten minutes to send over. A ten-minute window every week in which we'd have a little chat. Did I tell you I got one of these robot cleaners? Which was a real privilege because Tony Blackburn is, of course, the king of small talk. You know, instead of having a, um, a cleaner, you know, like a Dyson Hoover. Right. I got one of these, uh, a robot cleaner. It's like a, a disc shape, oh. and it just goes round, round cleaning. I'm thinking that it's not good at corners. It is. Is it? It is. Oh, it's unbelievable. It was genuinely a weekly highlight during a profoundly rubbish time for everyone. Hey, look, I'll stop talking this nonsense and let you get on with it. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's sent over, so thank you yeah, very much. Lovely. Thanks, Tom. One week, however, I decided to hijack one of these 10-minute windows to talk to Tony for this podcast. For not only is Tony the man who launched BBC Radio 1 back in 1967, a broadcasting legend and the king of small talk, he is also, lest we forget, the first ever king of the jungle. Tony, there's a hot shower and a warm bed waiting for you just over that bridge. You're the king of the jungle. Get yourself out of there! It changed me very much as a person. There is offshoots from that experience 
tentacles that have gone into my life and the dynamics of people in my life that have changed forever. We simply watched in open mouths that this was going on. Welcome to the Naughty's Podcast. My first question for this episode of the Naughty's Podcast is, did you guys, as teenagers, want to be famous? Big time. But I was always fantasizing about like being really good at something. Mainly it was always like doing a guitar solo on stage. I can't play the guitar. But like I was just thinking, imagine if I was Brian May. <laughs> Specifically Brian May. <laughs> Largely, yeah. I mean, I was also sort of obsessed with like it girls and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I didn't think I could ever, that wasn't achievable for me. I was more focused on being the best guitarist in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you didn't pick up a guitar at any point. <laughs> I like the way that you think that you couldn't have been famous for essentially having no talent, yeah. like being an it girl, but you could be yeah, famous for being a world-class guitarist in a glam rock band. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit more me. I always thought when I was a, a teenager um, growing up in the noughties, like I wanted to be on Big Brother. Um mm. I would have been really happy to have been on Big Brother. <laughs> I was thinking about this great. before and I was just, what was I thinking? So, like, I, I mean, I only asked this because um, on today's episode, we are going back in time to the 25th of August, 2002. Rob, you're a dates freak. You probably actually know what you were doing then, don't you? You probably know exactly <laughs> where you were. I am pretty sure I know where I was. I think I Shut was up. on... Are you joking? How? Well, no, 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 genuinely. How old are you? Would have been 11. Right. And it was the summer holidays, obviously. And yeah. I went on holiday um, in Portugal. And I just remember that being the end of that summer. Did you, by any chance, on that day, watch the first ever episode of the first ever series of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here? Ooh. Well, I, I mean, I did consider lying for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> but I, I have to confess, I didn't see that that episode, no. I saw it. Did you? Uh, yeah. Do you have strong well, memories? Um, I have strong memories of the series in general, yeah. Because it was... Life-changing, wasn't it? It was life-changing for you. Yeah, it was the first time we saw a celebrity eat a witch tea grub. Mm. Sophie is right, because while there had been reality TV before, this was one of the very first iterations to feature famous people, some of whom I spoke to. So I'm afraid no Yuri Geller. What? May as well stop now, eh? Uh, No Nigel Benn. Do you remember Nigel Benn? Boxer. Yes, I remember the fracas, which I'm sure we'll get to at some stage. Darren Day, didn't speak to him. Oh, he's gorgeous, isn't he? Nell McAndrew was on there. Tara Palmer Tompkinson was there, but she is no longer with us, sadly. Uh, but I did manage to speak to Christine Hamilton, Tony Blackburn and Rona Cameron. Rona Cameron is a Scottish writer and comedian. In 1992, she won the annual So You Think You're Funny stand-up competition at the Edinburgh Festival before moving to London and becoming a staple of panel shows like Nevermind the Buzzcocks and Have I Got News For You. In the year 2000, she wrote and starred in the sitcom Rona, which was described at the time as Britain's first lesbian sitcom. I spoke to her during the pandemic when she was in Edinburgh and asked how she'd been finding it. Yeah, I love not having to go anywhere. I just, I I just, all I want to ever do is a bit of exercise, cooking, writing. You know, I don't really need much else. So you think you've sort of adapted nicely to lockdown? Oh, it's perfect. I don't want it to end. I don't want anyone to die. I mean, I don't want to have to ever socialise again or ever go. I mean, I've always hated riding on trains with other people and being with them in the pictures and everything. But do you have to? I mean, I suppose if if, if you're enjoying it that much, you could just carry on, right? 
Well, I've always tried to get away from people, especially over the last few years. Here's the thing. I don't want to speak to people unless they've done therapy, unless they're open to it. The whole broad spectrum of self-inquiry process, mm. you know, the idea that we're here just to do a job, have some fun, you know, fuck, make children, find someone, you know, pass the time, um, take pictures of ourselves. That's not, that's not why we're here. No, we're here to talk about I'm a celebrity. Oh, well, there's always the that. Important, the important stuff. There's always that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were my kind of heyday. They, that was old me, the noughties. When when did New You start? 2009. What happened in 2009? I had a massive relationship breakup that was, uh, at the time Saturn came into Libra and Pluto was about to come into Capricorn, my ascendant, and I became uh, demolished. A place that many people don't come back from. When, when we spoke last, you said something very interesting. Well, you said that, well, the I'm a Celebrity experience specifically was quite traumatic. You said that that period, you know, various things that happened were quite traumatic. But at the same time, you said that this was the last good decade before everything turned to shit. Yes. Literally, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, around 1990, I was on the verge of thinking about being a stand-up. So by the end of that period... I would have been very established as a stand-up and, you know, on the cusp of quite a large amount of of fame. I mean, that's a sort of superficial part of it, but plus lots of, obviously, lovers and lots of fun, lots of hedonism. Externally, we, of course, we had our transfer of power. Finally, the, to- the Tories to Labour. We had new uh, Labour, didn't we? we? had a sort of love affair. So at the end of the 90s, I remember being in New Zealand on stage with a big red rose in my jacket, you know, and um, there was a feeling that things can, are indeed going to get better as the song went. It was the last era of seeing the old London, the old complex, fantastic kind of big slag of a London change through gentrification and that sort of blanding out commercialization, consumerism, the whole free market kit and caboodle. But you know, when you move to London as a person from a small town like myself, there was millions of us, especially gay people as illustrated in recently, it's a sin. You leave mm. your small, repressive, parochial town and you go into the big city. And um, London was this home for us all. And you could literally go there with nothing, as I did. You know, a bag, a bin liner full of stuff and a bag of records. And you could go and sleep on someone's floor and, you know, you'd find yourself a bed sit. And they were both uh, disturbing, grotesque, but also wonderful places. So mine was in Notting Hill. I'd live next door to Julie Christie, which was mind-blowing. And, you know, next to me, there's a, someone who's about to become a famous poet. There's a hypnotist who's across the road. There's a shoe designer, an actress. There's an Irish builder. You know, everything. Um, and it died out in the 90s. It became less bohemian, less artistic, less alternative. And it became you sort of blanded out by mostly young, bland people working in either the city or the media. 
I get the feeling that she's she's talking about us. <laughs> yeah. Bland. We're bland. We've ripped out the heart of London, unfortunately. I like what she was saying about therapy. She sounds very millennial, didn't she? I won't speak to anyone that hasn't had therapy. Yeah, and if you combine that with the astrology as well. Yeah. Yeah. She's born in the wrong decade. So 2002, that's when you started up on I'm a Celebrity. So what, what was happening in your life, your career around that time that meant that you decided to do that? Around 2000, I had a bit of a challenging time because, you know, I had worked very hard at my sitcom being out on BBC Two, Rona, and it was a very radical concept at that time because there had never been a lesbian with her own show on television. But it became very bland. It wasn't how I'd envisaged it being. I mean, it's still a wonderful thing to have done, but I did get very badly treated in the press. It affected me very, very badly to the point of I remember a couple of people called me up. Alan Davis and also Dave Baddiel spoke to me and they were both so lovely. I will never forget this. They called me up and said, are you okay? Because I've read some of the stuff that was said about you and it must have been really traumatic. I've always been so grateful for those those people getting in touch with me. So those things were were quite devastating. So at 2000, I went into a massive depression, very bad, and I just withdrew completely from everything. Of course, the chances are, if you're a stand-up comic, you're carrying some real um, shit from your childhood anyway. A lot of that childhood trauma is documented in a book she wrote called 1979, A Big Year in a Small Town. She talks about what it was like to grow up gay in Musselburgh in the 70s, the death of her father when she was a teenager, and her discovery that she was in fact adopted. She says some of those early experiences fed into her decision years later to go on I'm a Celebrity. You've gone off and you've done a reality show. Why? Because you needed the money. Why did you need the money? Because you never had much money, because you didn't start life with money or with a degree. And so when you started paying your rent, you know, and being a comedian, you were spending a lot of money, you know, and you were crazy because your childhood was crazy. And so you spent a lot of money on drugs and alcohol and subsequently therapy. And maybe you bought a house at the wrong time and sold it at the wrong time because you're not a nuclear family unit or you're not a man with a wife at home looking after you. You're a crazy fucking broken person who happens to be a successful comedian. So when at one point somebody comes along and says, look, love, you haven't got any work and he's 20 grand. Does it matter whether you perform fellatio to 25 tramps <laughs> or go to the rainforest in Australia? You know, you do it. So um, basically I, I went in, I had a chat. Obviously they seek to find out some of your weaknesses, like what are you afraid of? And at the time, you can't imagine that they're doing anything other than being careful not to put you in these positions, like a sort of health and safety thing, perhaps. The next thing I know, I'm being driven in a Mercedes to Kew Gardens for a photo call with a bizarre amount of people. And we're forced to put these tiny sort of reptilian animals on our shoulders and smile. What was, what was that? Did you know who everyone was? I'd be concerned that I don't recognise someone. Yeah, well, I'd heard of Tara uh, just in the papers and that is a sort of, you know, inverted commas, it girl, God rest her soul. I really 
loved Tara after that show. We were friends for a while, you know, and mm. um, she was a very generous person. I knew Darren was a bit of a sort of, you know, lover boy kind of stagey guy. And, um, of course, I knew who Nigel was, Yuri, yeah, everyone. Christine Hamilton, the Hamilton's a bit dubious. And Tony, of course, a legend from my childhood of old, uh, you know, Radio 2. Yeah, cheesy sort of DJ icon, I suppose. Cheesy DJ icon, Tony Blackburn. I suddenly got the call from my agent who uh, rung me up and said, uh, uh, how would you like to be dropped into the Australian jungle and survive for two weeks? And I thought he was joking. My, my mother at the time and my wife, Debbie, she tried to talk me out of it, saying I wouldn't be very good at it. But I thought, no, I, I want to do this because I think sometimes in life something comes along. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And um, I said to my wife, I said, if I turned this down and I saw it on the television and I thought, oh, my God, it's so good, I could have been a part of that, I'd never have forgiven myself. And I'm so glad I did it because it changed me very much as a person. Uh, because you're you're alone by yourself in that jungle, and um, and it's like you you come to one with nature, and it's a beautiful place to be. You know the the rainforest. It's not a jungle; it's a rainforest, really. Mm. And um, it, it it I got I found sort of inner peace there. Really, I'm not religious in any way. I don't go to church. I don't believe in all that. But I I found this inner peace, and it stayed with me for quite a time, and it's still there to a certain extent. Really? So you mm. think it genuinely uh, you benefited from being on the program? Not just in a kind of cynical yeah. career kind of way, no. but in a holistic uh, well-being kind of way. Oh, absolutely, 100%. I mean, I didn't go in there uh, to rescue a career until I was told in the press that's why I did it. I thought I was doing quite well. As it happened, it did boost my career somewhat um, because suddenly there were a load of people who had never heard of me before, particularly the youngsters, who suddenly knew who I was. I, I actually had uh, dinner with Ant and Deck the day the night before I went in in the hotel and we were chatting away and the camera crew funnily enough uh, placed bets on me to win uh, I didn't realise that at the time really and, uh, yeah it's funny I don't know why and then when I'd won the thing and I was going over the bridge with the producer I said how did the show do he said well let's put it this way he said I will always have work and you will always always be able to work because he said it's been the biggest success story of uh, ITV and uh, everybody just recognised me from that programme. Mm. And I remember filling my car up. I was 60 years old at the time. And I filled my car up at Brent Cross, it was. And a dear old man, he must have been about 80, 88 or something like that, came over on some sticks and he patted me on the shoulder and said, Tony, you've done so much for our age group. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I got in the car and I, I, I cried. It was so sweet. Really? You know, what he said. Yeah. It was so sweet, you know. It was really wonderful. That that man, he said he he was eighty eight, and he said you've done wonders for our age group. Tony's sixty. Yeah, I can understand why Tony was upset. <laughs> I'd, I'd be offended too. That's like that's like a, that's like a sixty year old man coming up to us, going like, "Oh, you're doing wonders for our age group. You're not in our age group." Not even close. No, but when you're 60, you're an OAP officially. You get your freedom pass. I'm just saying there's enough distance between Tony Blackman and that old man. It's the same distance between me and a baby. Yeah. And you, you don't think that babies are doing anything for your age group, do you? Nothing at all. While the jungle may have allowed Tony to find inner peace, it had a very different effect on most of the other contestants. It was the most argumentative series uh, that there's ever been. You know, people just did not get on. 
It was amazing. Sometimes you behave like a... Oh, OK. Well, then, yes, I'll tell you what, then let's just rest it at that. You. you think I'm a... No, I find you very patronising. I realised right from the word go it was best not to get involved in the arguments because you couldn't win. But a lot of mm. people forgot it was a TV show and sort of let themselves down a little bit. I never forgot it was a TV show and I thought I'm going to have to go home and, uh, you know, pick up my four-year-old daughter from school and I don't want to have let her down. That first one, that was your original Lord of the Flies, you know. Plus, we had incredibly challenging weather with very little clothes in those days. We had torrential Passendale-type mud mm. and rain for several days with only one change of clothing. So, and we had to get our own water from the stream in those days, boil it up because it wasn't hygienic and cool it down in order to drink. So we, we were actually medically treated for dehydration. So there's points in that journey where people are physically ill and Nigel in particular would not drink any water and he was suffering from the effects of severe dehydration at one point. The arguments became so heated that things almost got out of control. Nigel Benn was a boxing world champion from East London, nicknamed the Dark Destroyer. Hungry and dehydrated, it was he, along with actor Darren Day, who Rona very nearly came to blows with. As you know, both Darren and Nigel expressed at the same time their desire to have a physical punch-up with me and expressed their deep regret that I wasn't a man so they couldn't have a, a fight with me. Yeah. You're lucky It'd be really if you were a man. Nice. If you were a man, I would knock yeah. you, Sparko. If you were the man, I would knock you, Sparko. If I was a man, I'd love to f- fight you, Nigel. Yeah, was... If I was a boxer, <laughs> yeah. I would love to. Yeah. Very shocking. Yeah. I mean, Nigel says, "Yeah, if you were a man, I'd knock, knock you, Sparko." Knock you, Sparko. Darren says something similar, saying that he would yeah, have a fight I'd, with I'd, you. I've to admit, Ron, so yo, I'd, I'd be in the queue as well. If you were a bloke, you'd have had two fisticuffs within two days. Because yeah. I'd have, I'd have gone with you yesterday. No f- worries. I thought if he comes any closer, I'm going to have to headbutt him, is what I was thinking, because this is getting really threatening. I didn't have anyone coming in and going, oh, poor little vulnerable Rona. She's a, a woman, a girl that needs protecting. Mm. But lesbians of my age, we're used to taking a punch and we're used to throwing a punch because that's what life was like. You know, It was the Wild West. It was very normal to be in a pub and to get into an argument with a guy and for him to punch you and think nothing of it because you're a lesbian. I've been punched in a huge bar fight in Scotland years ago for punching a girl who punched me. I've been punched by a bloke for punching a girl. I mean, you know, that's how it was, right? So when the heavyweight or middleweight ex-boxing champion of the world is allowed on national television to put his face one inch from mine as I'm lying in my hammock and he towering over me with his big muscular frame saying if you were a bloke and I could see literally see saliva forming at the, foaming at the corner mm. of his mouth uh, I'd love to knock you sparkle it's my natural reaction because of the life I've had to say yeah and if I was a bloke I'd love to fight you Nigel mm. <laughs> you know I mean you just wouldn't get that now okay no well do you think that that, that scenario wouldn't exist now that, that makers of a show like that wouldn't wouldn't allow this to happen. Yes, I think they would have removed Nigel from the show for threatening a woman, inverted commas. And however um, annoying you may be, I don't know if you deserve that. (laughs) 
after the show ended, he was devastated about how he was uh, he came across. His wife contacted me and said that he was devastated, and he went on uh, breakfast television, practically in tears. You know, sent me a massive letter, a big bunch of flowers. Wow. You know, he was practically in tears when he apologized to me um, afterwards, you know. So, I mean, I think of him in, in only loving spirit now. Darren, yeah, lovely bloke. He stayed in touch for a while afterwards. Christine, I ran into now and again at things, but I haven't seen her for years. Um, but that still, it's always a bit uncomfortable with Neil and the links to Thatcher and all that. And also, I mean, I have to confess, I did sort of feel like I had a bit of a crush on Christine for, for the for the 24-hour plane journey back. But, you know, authoritarian, kind of strict. Um, she's a bit masculine as well, women, you know. I suppose I have a bit of a weakness for that. So there was a bit of that. But then I had to, you know, I had to pinch myself and go, she's a Tory. She's a Tory. Where are you based physically? I'm in South London. So whereabouts are you? Uh, we're in uh, North Wiltshire, the very top corner, the bit of Wiltshire that people don't realise exists. This is Christine Hamilton, media personality and wife of former Tory party MP and the current leader of UKIP, Neil Hamilton. How have you been finding this lockdown period, by the way? Um, I do find it extraordinary how, how meekly the great British public have gone along with this denial of, of basic freedoms. It's extraordinary. I thought there might be rioting in the streets, as it were, but there hasn't been. And I didn't realise at the outset how important it was having something to do. For a lot of people, not having the discipline of getting up and going to work proves to be quite challenging. Well, Neil's got lots to do now, isn't he? I mean, he's, he now, he's now head of UKIP. Oh, he's got far too much to do, yes. And he's a, he's a member of the Welsh Parliament, the Welsh Senate, um, has been for nearly five years. And I, I work as his PA secretary which is what I did for him when he was in Parliament. Well, it's interesting because back in 2002, that was the year the year that you went on I'm a Celebrity. That was the same year that, that Neil kind of switched allegiances. He left the Tory party and joined UKIP at that point. I think, I think I'm think i right in saying that. It is indeed. You're quite... Oh. oh! So sorry. That's my phone. I haven't turned it off. <laughs> I know, it's a duck. Do you want to ask me the question again about the allegiances or do you want to leave the duck in? <laughs> the duck was quite enjoyable, but no, I can ask it again. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I, I suppose it wasn't really a question, but it was just I was just noticing that, yes, that was the same no, time. No, it was indeed. Um, although he joined something called the Anti-Common Market League way back in 1967 when he was a schoolboy, before the EU even existed. Nobody, nobody believes this, but I really, you know, I've had enough of politics and I don't like controversy. I would much rather get on with people, which really brings me back to the jungle in a way. This is coming from a woman who changed her name by deed poll to Mrs. British Battleaxe. Mm. <laughs> you struggle to convince me that she doesn't like a fight. Yeah. Well, maybe just maybe she's mellowed now, you know? Yeah, Mrs. Mellow British Battleaxe. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't ask her where in North Wiltshire she lived, considering that's sort of near where we're from. Well, she said it's the bit where no, no one knows where it is. So you thought there's no there's no point in you asking. <laughs> That's interesting to me, but there's no point in me asking. No one knows where it is. <laughs> well, I'm not going to know, am I? So what's the point? <laughs> Let's move on. She's got you, really. Hasn't my she? knowledge, right? My British geography knowledge is terrible. Are we really that near to Wiltshire? Yes. You live about two miles from the border with with Wiltshire, Tom. 
I thought we were in Somerset. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's Somerset is an island. <laughs> Back in 2001, Christine and Neil featured in a famous Louis Theroux documentary, which recorded them almost by accident, at a time when they suddenly found themselves in the eye of a media storm after someone accused the couple of sexual assault, a charge they were eventually cleared of. Last night, in preparing for this chat with you, I, I went back and watched the Louis Theroux documentary, which is an astonishing... Oh, have you Have you seen it recently? Have you seen it since it... Well, I have, because um, The Wretches, the BBC, put it on um, BBC Two, I think, so I'm afraid I did watch it hmm. um, with a mixture of... Well, actually, it's quite difficult to watch yourself going through what was a horrendous time. But we remain on good friends, good terms with Louis. Um, I think he did, a, he did a good job. I mean, there were a few things I would take issue with. There was one scene in particular that I, I was just quite interested in because there's a scene, is it with your mother? Yes, yes. I mean, Louis's there as well. Yes. And she doesn't seem to embrace the idea that this documentary is happening at all. She doesn't seem too no. fond of Louis. Um, no. So I was wondering what her views were on on you going on a program like this on, on I'm a Celebrity. Was was she was she against that as an idea? Um, I didn't really know what I was doing, and she she just thought I was going out to Australia for a bit, and, and I wasn't able to, to give her huge details. But no, she didn't approve. Her famous phrase to me once when I was about, she said, "Oh, darling, just carry on with your extraordinary behaviour." But then you don't want to be doing things that your mother approves of. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> there have been reality TV before, but I, I think this was kind of the first time it had been with celebrities. Uh, I'm not sure. Yes, I don't think that they had done. And I hate the word celebrity. Honestly, it's <laughs> it's it's just attached to anybody now. Uh, well, no, no, figures who figures who were previously known before they went into the scenario. I, I don't think there had been a, a show where uh, there were known figures. Known figures, that's a much better phrase, thank you. <laughs> what you won't remember was the very first Big Brother. We do remember the first Big Brother, don't we? I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've watched them. <laughs> she thinks you're the baby again. She thinks there's no difference between <laughs> you and a baby. I mean, that was unbelievable. Mm. Well, we, you know, we simply watched in open mouths that this was going on. How can anybody go into the house and how can they possibly be observed? And heavens, look, they've completely forgotten that their every move is on camera. Yeah, but, but <laughs> you agreed to subject yourself to this. So uh, I, I'm kind of intrigued as to what the thinking was. Well, <clears throat> I didn't agree to start with. You know, we've had a pretty grim year and I wasn't exactly, you know, flavour of the month, as it were. And people had got this rather warped view of me. But anyway, I, I sort of asked a bit about it. And they sort of talked about rice and beans and snakes and all that. And I honestly, I just thought, do I really need that right now in my life? And I just turned it down. Late June, early July, they obviously hadn't got their sort of middle-aged mother hen. And so they came back to me and I and it sounded rather fun, to be honest. You did fairly well. Yes, I did. I mean, I got to, I mean, in the last three, um, Tony, Tyra uh, and me. Which, to be honest, it absolutely amazed me because I thought I'd be out very quickly because I thought people wouldn't like me. But I'll tell you what mm. it did. I sometimes actually get cold when I realise that I nearly turned it down or I did turn it down, but I was given a second chance. It completely changed the public's view of me. And having started out with the view that I was this god-awful woman that they'd only seen through the sort of prism of the, of the newspapers, and they suddenly thought, good heavens, she's... She's a human being. We didn't realise that. 
She's quite fun. She's kind to people. She's got a sense of humour. Heavens, we quite like her. And I know from the letters that I got at the time that when people said so, they said, I've completely changed my view of you. So it turned out to be an extremely good move, but I simply didn't realise at the time. And it sort of gradually dawned when we all came out, you realised quite how big it had been. When you get taken off, you suddenly go along this undergrowth and suddenly there's this massive sort of close encounters camp of Mm. structures and people with walkie-talkies and wires and lights. And I wanted to just sit on Mission Beach, which is what my beach chalet looked out onto, Mm -hmm. and just sit there and be left. So I sort of dismissed everyone for a while and said, look, leave me alone for two hours, please. But by then, of course, your manager's like, you need to speak to Now Magazine. You need to do this. Right. You need to do this. And you're like, what? Yeah, they want you for the cover. This is what happened to me. So I, I sat on the beach in my, you know, vote for Rona phone numbered mm. uh, shirt. And I just looked out at the ocean. And I think I played my way. And I just sat and looked out. And I thought, okay, Rona, you've had this crazy life from the start. But what have you just been through now? I don't quite understand. Once you leave the show, you do have the feeling that in your toilet, in your bathroom, in your bedroom, wherever you are, for weeks on end, it probably takes a good month or so for it to disappear, that people are watching you. And that is something that stays stays with you. So yeah, the cameras are everywhere. And in the first series, what's very important to say, Tom, is that we genuinely had no idea that anyone was watching. There was no template in which we could compare Hmm. before that. So it was a new experience. After I'm a Celebrity, I did a number of chat shows, right? I did Graham Norton, Frank Skinner and Parkinson. That was a real honour. I mean, Parkinson is, when you're a kid uh, from a modest background, Parkinson's the interviewer you fantasise about being interviewed with. You know, you talk to yourself in the bath and you're on parquet. Well, I was sitting backstage in Parkinson with Johnny Vegas and it was also his first time on Parkinson and Serene McKellen. And uh, when the band struck up, Johnny and I were both in tears. And when you walk out on that stage, I mean, it's a pretty young, limited, nervous sort of, I'd say, quite embarrassing interview that I gave. But I was young, you know, I was old me. Did either of you ever pretend that you were on Parkinson when you were in the bath? No. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I mean, I've pretended that I've pretended that I've been on TV shows. Um, I think in like in my mind. How do, how do you mean? Which ones? Well, I used to I used to think about what I would do if I was on Big Brother, for example. Um, what kind of thing? Shagging under the table? No, nothing. I was a child. Um, you know, you used to watch, sometimes they would play the people's audition tapes and they'd be kind of wacky and crazy. Yeah. And I would think, what would I do if I was going on the audition tape? And I think I saw one where someone was going down the stairs on a mattress. So I got the mattress off my bed and then <laughs> went down the stairs on, on that. But no one was, um, no one was filming you. It's just. But no one was filming it. No, I didn't have a camera. Speaking of stairs. The one thing I did think about when it came to chat shows and Parkinson, do you remember Parkinson? They had to walk down the stairs as the band was playing, whichever sort of guest was playing. Mm-hmm. And that just used to, the thought of that alone used to make me feel hot under the collar. Imagine having to do a stare yeah. on Michael Parkinson. Imagine if you stacked it. Yeah, it's nerve wracking, isn't it? 
It's like your wedding day. Though her experience on I'm a Celebrity led to interviews on national TV and press, it wasn't all positive. There's offshoots from that experience, tentacles that have gone into my life and the dynamics of people in my life that are changed forever. One of the problems that show caused for me was it led to a front cover uh, of Now magazine, which were paying me, uh, you know, about 20 grand or something. And I'd never in my life been paid that money. But, you know, when you do that kind of interview, you do shake hands with the devil and there are consequences because they will find out things about your life. And you can't lie because you're being paid to do this big interview and that's what the money's for. Rona had been in a relationship with TV presenter Sue Perkins. But at this point, Sue Perkins hadn't yet come out as gay. It was the end of my relationship with Sue Perkins. And Sue was, still to this day, one of the loves of my life. And although we had broken up some time before that, we still loved each other very much and we couldn't let go. But Now Magazine had managed to find out that Sue and I had owned a property together through the council tax records. And I couldn't deny that. So all I did was admit that. I want to be very clear that on my Wikipedia page, it has me as outing Sue Perkins. Well, I never outed Sue Perkins. And I don't want to speak about Sue without also saying that I keep Sue in my heart forever as we carry all our big loves with us forever. So all I feel is is a love for her. But the media is a, a, what can I say? It's a fuck, you know. The other thing that happened to me was I'd only recently met my biological father in Newcastle. Um, I'm, I've got Geordie parents and um, the tabloids had managed to track him down. Amazing, because it took me about 20 years to find out who he was. And um, my half-sister uh, at the time, was in a quite a desperate place with, with personal difficulties and addiction. And she also sold stories to the tabloids for a small sum of money about me. So these things, let me say, they snowball, right? And the snowballs become a kind of cement and it creates walls between actual people. You know, when I look back to wanting my own sitcom in my mid-30s and wanting it all, and when I think about doing my first gig and running along the tube station platform that night completely alone, feeling that I'd finally linked up with my destiny, and if I look at the mid-50s me, who's been through a lot, who's been very battered, who's, you know, an old warrior, an old cowboy that wants to, you know, hang up their holster, if you could tell your younger self that you need a lot of patience because... Especially as an artist, it's often about synchronicity. You know, when you are perceived to be, let's say, top of your game, as in oh, in the papers every day or, 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 you know, top of the bill, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily at the top of your game in terms of the development of your mind or your soul. And as a writer, that's the stuff that really matters. So that is the stuff that I really want to concentrate now because that has only just begun uh, for me. And you're, you're, you're enjoying the present right now? Well, I don't, I wouldn't say I don't enjoy. I don't believe in, in that. I do, I do things I enjoy. You know, I swim in the ocean. You know, I've started painting again. Writing is where the sanity lies. And I have a beautiful dog. He's slightly on the spectrum, but he's, you know, he's my soul buddy. And I have got two 
people in my life who love me very much and know me well and you don't really need more than one or two but I don't see myself as somebody who will be happy I don't believe in happiness what I believe in is is trying to find your purpose and working at being sane enough to fulfill it Overall, we're saying now that obviously we're very glad that we didn't become famous because it does sound, from what Ryan is saying, uh, like it would be rubbish. Yeah, I mean, it's just really sad what she was talking about with her, you know, her family obviously going through difficulties and them and her sisters selling stories about her to the tabloids. The tabloids tracking down her biological dad, who she'd only just recently met. Like, you're clearly, by by being in the public eye, leaving yourself open to to um a lot of a lot of damage and a lot of hurt mm. but that's what people always say you know that you know you knew what you were getting yourself into becoming a famous person which is just complete rubbish any closing statements yes i was thinking when you're sat there on the beach looking out over the sea you've just been in the jungle for however many weeks mm. what song would you play rona cameron went for frank sinatra my, my way, way. Yeah. Which to me, like I don't. I mean, Rona seems like a lovely person. That feels a bit, a bit of a cliche for me. Rona, Donny would have had Queen of the Darkness, probably. Probably Queen. I would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What, what would you have? I'd have uh, uh, probably had the Parkinson theme, just round and round. You'd be preparing. The Naughties Podcast is a Four Kicks production with original music from Coach Conrad. Many thanks to Tony Blackburn, Christine Hamilton, Rona Cameron, and to you, of course, for listening. Next week, prank calls. We'll see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.